Today's episode of Found Down is brought to you by Unwound Retreats. Unwound Retreats offers fun events and travel experiences for nurses locally and internationally. Founded by me, Nicole Johnson, ICU nurse and host of the Found Down podcast, I provide opportunities for nurses to practice self-care, learn, and travel together. These last two years have been brutal in healthcare, and why not give yourself the gift to unwind, learn, and grow? Previous guests have loved the experiences, especially because you can just show up and know that everything will be taken care of. Unwound Retreats is offering exciting and luxurious retreats in Morocco and Mexico. Go over to unwoundretreats.com and sign up to get on the email list so you can find out more. Welcome to the Found Down Podcast. This is a podcast of untold nursing stories that are sometimes hilarious, dark, insane, and anything in between. As a warning, this show is rated E and is mature in content. It often deals with the reality of life and death and how we as nurses intersect with that on a regular basis. If we laugh, it's not out of disrespect. We love what we do and have every intention of continuing to do so. With that, enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the Found Down Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Johnson, and today I'm talking with Krista Haugen. I'm going to say this right this time. You're the patient safety director at a major medical ground and air transport company. And before we get started, I just want to let you know, Krista, everybody, so many people have reached out to me to talk positively about your story, your you know, you sharing your experience with a helicopter crash. And they said that you're such an eloquent speaker. And so it's just an honor to have you back on the show. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you. And thank all of them. And thanks for having me again. It's a pleasure. I well, it's uh, yeah, it's an honor. And I'm just I'm just eternally grateful to even be having these conversations. So it's it's such a delight. We are going to get into kind of a heavy topic. And this is your, I think it's your area of expertise as a patient safety director, but we're going to talk about to err is human, like errors in, in, in the medical, like medical errors in the healthcare setting. So, but before we get into anything super heavy, how are you? How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> it's going, um, sun's shining today. So we got that going for us and, um, you know, spring's Wind. on the way. I'm grateful for oh. that. That's yes, I I am too. I mean, we had, yeah, it's officially spring. What is it? The vernal equinox that happened? I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure on what <laughs> what those dates are, but yeah, we're on our way to s- summer. And for us in this in Seattle, in the Seattle area, in the Pacific Northwest, like this is what we live for. This exactly, is why we're here. Exactly, exactly. There's light at the end of this big long tunnel. Yes. Oh, and last time I talked to you, I know you hadn't gotten the vaccine yet. Did you, are you on the list yet? Or do you, did you hear the good news? I, I am done. <gasps> I am fully yeah. vaccinated. I, and on Tuesday, it'll be two weeks from my second vaccination. So I'm super excited about that. That is so great. Yes. That is so great. For the listeners out there in Washington, April 16th, everybody's going to be eligible. So I encourage you to get the vaccine if, you know, for people who are listening, um, Obviously, don't have to, but I would I would prefer you did for public safety. But that's my own little snippet, and I might cut that out. But so I want to have a discussion about mistakes in healthcare, in particular in nursing. But first, I'm going to read a little bit about this topic. Um, just a little blurb, maybe like two minutes. So a 2000 Institute of Medicine report estimated that medical errors result in 44,000 and uh, between 44,000 and 98,000 preventable deaths and 1 million excess injuries each year in hospitals. The literature shows that medical errors are caused by errors of commission, errors of omission, and errors through miscommunication. The greater proportion of errors occur through errors of omission and errors of the commission rather than mis- miscommunication. Errors of omission are made when providers did not take the action they should have, while errors are, of commission occur when decisions and actions are delayed. Medical errors can be associated with inexperienced physicians and nurses, new procedures, extremes of ages, and complexes of urgent care, or complex or or urgent care. 
poor communication and proper documentation, illegible handwriting, spelling errors, inadequate nurse-to-patient ratios, and similarly named medications are also known to contribute to the problem. Patient actions also can contribute to significantly to medical errors, such as falls, for example, um, when people don't make th have their own misjudgments. So the to error is human report um, from the IOM asserted that the problem in medical errors is not that there are bad people in healthcare. It is that good people are working in bad systems that need to be made safer. Poor communication and unclear lines of authority of physicians, nurses, and other providers are also contributing factors. And disconnected reporting systems within a hospital can result in fragmented systems in which numerous handoffs of patients result in lack of coordination and errors. Okay, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> like there's, there are many opportunities um, to err, and I'm sure the people out there are like, why, why would I go to the hospital? <laughs> but um, in your opinion, after you know, probably hearing some of that, what do you think um, in your experience like are the biggest contributors to mistakes um, in healthcare or errors? And, and who do you think is the most risk? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, that report is what came about, what, yeah, I think you said 2000, 1999-ish. If you look at some current literature, I mean, I've seen numbers up around 400,000 patients <gasps> dying in hospitals um, or in the, you know, the healthcare system annually uh, because of clinical error. Um, and so, I'm glad you brought that up because that is really the foundation for what I do is trying to move away from that, you know, pointing the finger, individual blame and looking more at systems. Um, and those figures are really only about mortality. They don't address morbidity. So what do we do um, that increases length of stay or creates permanent disability or those types of things. So, uh, you know, I think the numbers are pretty staggering. Um, why and how these things happen is incredibly complex. And, mm -hmm. you know, I appreciate you, you outlining some of those things that were in the original report. Um, I, I think it's, it, it's far more complex than even that. And to give you an example, um, I, I like causal diagramming. So like an, an, an incident happens and then you kind of map out, you know, depending on sort of like the five whys and, and follow that trajectory. Um, I don't mm. like the term causal diagramming because some of these things are contributing factors and not necessarily causal factors, but there's an organization called Think Reliability and they have mm. a cause map of why over 1500 people lost their lives on the Titanic. And, you know, since that's a story that everybody knows, it's a great um, wow. sort of illustration of this point. You know, I, I asked that question on a call that I was on recently, like, why do you think over 1500 people lost their lives? Um, with, you know, in the Titanic um, incident and people are like, oh, you know, there weren't enough lifeboats or, you know, the captain, you know, aired or that kind of thing, which is true. But, you know, I just pulled, I pulled up this cause causal diagram right now and I'm just going to walk through it just to give you an idea of the complexity, right? So yeah, there's the loss of over 1500 lives. Why is that? Well, the Titanic sank. Uh, the rescue ships arrived late and there were insufficient lifeboats and P.S. they hadn't drilled this um, scenario either. Why did the Titanic sink while the ship filled with water? Why did the ship fill with water? Because the bulkheads weren't sealed and there were openings in the hull and steel seams open on the hull. Well, why did that happen? Because the strength of the hull wasn't enough to handle the impact stress and there was a problem with the strength, strength of the rivets. Well, why was there impact stress on the hull? Because a, sh a ship hit an iceberg at a, a pretty significant rate of speed. Why did the ship hit the iceberg? Well, there was an iceberg in their path and there was an in insufficient turn of the ship. Why was there an insufficient turn of the ship? Well, because the lookout saw the iceberg late because they were going too fast and because of the size of the rudder. Why did the lookouts not see the iceberg in time? Because they didn't have binoculars. The water was calm, so there was no splash of the water on the iceberg, which helped them identify it. It was dark, and the lookout process was ineffective. So, to, like, I, I really love that, that, that story, that scenario, because it demonstrates the complexity 
of what would mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, it would be really easy to over- oversimplify and say, oh, it was the captain's fault. Same principle right. goes in, in healthcare. And so, you know, to your question, you know, what do you think are the biggest contributors? Um, there's, <laughs> there are so many different <laughs> factors here, right? So we look at systems. Well, we look at the, you know, there's a lot of hazards in our environment that, you know, there's a lot of risk. We look at systems. We look at context. We look at individuals. Um, I personally look at individuals last. You know, I want to understand what the risks are. I want to understand what the systems are and the processes. I want to understand what the context is. And I'll get to the individual. But um, I think some of the the biggest contributors, really not directly, but the fact that we want to blame individuals and stop there, maybe some organizations um, still do that. The oversimplification of these conversations, the reluctance to talk about errors and learn from them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the beauty of that Institute of Medicine report that you cited earlier is that, you know, what they found was, was, was people and organizations weren't talking about these things transparently. Why? Well, you know, they're a lot of times very difficult to talk about, but one of the biggest issues was fear of litigation and fear of those mm-hmm. comfort conversations being discoverable. And so legislation was passed in 2005, the PSQIA, the Patient Safety and Quality Improvement Act, which said, hey, listen, if, if you guys will, you know, re- create, try to create a culture of reporting where people will come talk to you, whether there was harm or not, um, work through these, these issues, review them, analyze them, figure out what we can, you know, fix and make improvements and then audit those improvements, then we're going to give you some legal protection from that patient safety work being mm. discoverable in litigation. So, you know, the the legal protection is sort of a byproduct of organizations, you know, doing this work and making an effort to set up systems. Um, you know, you listed off, you know, errors of omission and commission, things like that, which, you know, are certainly valid. If I were going to, and like I said, there's just, there's so many different reasons. And I think there's, it's important to understand there's no singular cause you know, it's usually a combination of factors. Mm-hmm. Um, things don't just happen. Usually there's like, whether you call right. it a, a chain of events or holes in the Swiss cheese or links in the air chain, that kind of thing. But um, I think an under underappreciation of risk mm-hmm. um, plays in sometimes. I think that mm-hmm. people have a perceived sense of urgency. There are massive time pressures that we're up against. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes self-imposed, sometimes the, the clinical situation calls for it. Sometimes it's imposed by our organizations. Sometimes it's imposed by the public, but those time pressures, when you start rushing, you're really setting, you know, setting up for error. And then certainly, um, I think communication is, is a huge issue. And especially now you look back at 2020, like when you look at the fact that most communication occurs non-verbally and everybody's oh, right. layered head to toe in PPE right now you know, how are you supposed to communicate effectively? So that's, that's a huge thing. Fatigue, stress, workload, you know, those types of things are, um, you know, really yeah. significant. So long, long answer to your short question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sort of thinking about, um, you know, the year we've had and, you know, I'm sure a ton of people are burnt out or beyond. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, and some, I know there's a piece of complacency that can happen when you're burnt out. And so you're, I'm not saying, well, anyway, there are, there's just so many factors, but like, you know, if you're not feeling your best, like you might not, um, I don't know. You might not realize like that there could be an error under, or like you said, appreciate the risk or be as engaged, which, you know, I think can lead to, um, you know, problems and, as well. Oh, it's but true. It, there's, there's literature on that, you know, like the well-being and resilience of our healthcare professionals is, is, is related to patient safety. Um, burnout's a huge deal. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, the, the model that I personally use has the resilience, like the, 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 the caregiver, the resilience and well-being of the caregiver at the very heart of it, mm-hmm. because how well do you, manage 
those things that impact your performance that are sort of human factors, things like, you know, stress, chaotic environments, fatigue, mm-hmm. how well do you execute sort of um, the things that help us mitigate that, like communication, conflict resolution, teamwork, when you're just burnt, your friend on the vine, got nothing left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a really, it's a strong case. The patient safety um, case is a strong case for promoting resilience and well-being in our caregivers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about, you know, if you are busy on the floor, you've got tons of things happening. It's a chaotic environment, like you said. You're, you know, you're maybe trying to notify a provider of like a problem, but they don't call back or you, and you try, try again and they don't call back. Like at some point, do you, you know, like how hard do you push? And if you're totally crazy busy and, and having a tough time, like maybe you say, well, you, you tried but like, is that enough? Exactly. I mean, have you ever thought about how many steps go into like every single thing that you do? Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. Just the amount of steps that go into even like, you know, giving a medication. And if Mm -hmm. any, if any sort of step goes sideways, there's a potential for error, Mm -hmm. you know, or, Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's exactly what you're saying. When you look at these high workloads, chaotic environment, you're exhausted, you're decked out in PPE, you're super hot, you haven't had a chance to take a bio break or get a drink Mm -hmm. or eat something. Yeah, I mean, it's super challenging. I think when I was when I was a nursing student, I had my first glimpse at the level of responsibility of you know, medication administration and how you can make a mistake. I was, I, this wasn't, it was something I witnessed. I was like walking by a room on a, you know, I was on my clinical and I saw a nurse pop a pill and put a pill in a patient's mouth. And she was like, oh, you're John Doe. And he was like, I'm not John Doe. And she was like, spit it out, spit it out. (laughs) Yep. And I was like, oh, Okay. And obviously there was no barcode administration. Those are tools that can help with, um, you know, safe patient medication administration. But um, anyway, I I was kind of like, all right. Okay. Well, you know, it can happen and you got to know, I mean, you know, we we always, you know, we talk about the five rights. Um, Sometimes you see what, oh, you've probably heard this. You see what you want to see, right? Uh-huh. For sure. Yeah. 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 And it's quite a, re- uh, quite the, the revelation when you, you know, and you're in the circumstances that you witness, you're like, oh, this can happen. And then it's another thing when you're like, oh, this can happen to me. Mm. I mean, I remember my very first medication error. I was a relatively new nurse working in an emergency department and, you know, this will totally date me, but we were, I was, had an order to give Demerol, <laughs> Demerol oh. and Fenergan for pain. We don't do that anymore much. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was used to seeing a particular dosage order. I can't remember what it was. I want to say it was like 25 milligrams of Demerol and 25 of Fenergan or something like that. I am for this patient. So, and we had, we didn't have electronic charting systems. We didn't have any of the double checks, you know, that kind of thing, except for what you did on your own. Um, and so I went to give it and pulled it up, you know, talked to the patient, gave the injection, went back to doc, like sign it off, check it off that I had done it. And I, in horror, saw that the physician had ordered 12 and a half of Demerol instead of 25. And, you know, it's exactly what you just said. Like I, I was used to, I was look. I didn't, I was, I saw what I was, what I was looking to, I, I don't even know how to explain that. <laughs> Yeah, you saw what you want. I mean, you... you. I saw what I was yeah. used to seeing instead of what was yeah. actually written down. And then when I came mm-hmm. back, I, I had that punch in the gut, you know, sick feeling. And it's it's super interesting because it didn't cause harm, but that didn't matter to me. The, mm-hmm. What mattered to me is that I had erred. And I, you know, I went and told the charge nurse... She said, you got to talk to the doc. So I went to the doc. And of course, it was the most stern and serious doc that was on 
that, that work there. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, tail between my legs, I went up and I just said, Hey, um, you know, I, I, I made a medication error and, you know, he was, he was very kind about it. He said, okay, just don't let it happen again, which is funny because doing what I do now, that's not an effective risk mitigation strategy. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. No, I, I won't let it happen again. But I'll tell you what, it increased my risk intelligence because ever since then, like, I'm like, I am, I'm putting a substance into somebody else's body. I need to know exactly what it is. I need to know exactly how it works. And I would double, triple, and it might, you know, might even sound a little paranoid, but, you know, considering the ramifications of if I'm wrong, I would double check, triple check, quadruple check, you know, the label, the order, the patient, talk to the patient um, to make sure that I was giving them the right thing. And, you know, I think I fared pretty well on that until, you know, quite a ways through my, at least that I know of, because, you know, yeah, I, that's a fair to the best of my, to the best of my knowledge, you know, that, that methodology for giving medications worked well until I got kind of down the road in my career. And then, um, my, the next medication error that I know of, um, it was with solumedrol. So it's a, it's, it's not, a, not an entirely benign med. None of them are, but it's not, you know, earth shattering yeah. if somebody gets more than they need. Um, one of my fellow nurses was going to help me out cause I was busy and she had gone to give the medication and I didn't know that she went to give it and I gave it again, but it was before Pixis oh. great graded out, you know, like it, it, it grays it out if you've already given it. So you can't physically take it out again. It was before it did that. So there was an engineering control that needed to go into Pixis to help mitigate that. And then we had communication breakdown between the two of us, Mm -hmm. all totally well-intended. Yeah. And so, you know, it's to your point, people don't go to work to hurt people. People go to work in these, in this, in these professions, they go to work to do a good job and to take good care of people. And so that's, you know, it's so devastating when errors occur that, you know, we're a part of, and even those ones where, there was no harm. Those were serious gut punch for me. Yeah, it, it. I completely understand the feeling. I've had it myself, um, and it makes you feel so vulnerable, I, you know. And also recognizing the vulnerability of your patients too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, again, we don't want to hurt anybody. Like, our job is to keep people safe. But I mean, it's. I mean, it's entirely possible. It's to to make a mistake and um, like vigilance is key. I mean, you, you have to. I mean, I'm I'm the same. I triple check, quadruple check, um, and you know, and and also, I mean, I was um, an assistant manager for a while, and so you know, I did a lot of reviewing of the safety events, right? The private sort of the safety reporting system. And so you hear, I mean, you know, bags, bags get switched, right? You switch a vasopressor and an insulin, like, unfortunately, like things get done in the nighttime. People are hanging medicine, don't want to wake their patient. And so, I mean, things, things can happen. And, and you just think, oh my, oh my God, you know? Well, you know, the, the, the world that we operate in is incredibly complex Mm-hmm. And, you know, the nurses, we as nurses, uh, their healthcare staff are sort of the last line of defense between, you know, all of this complexity and the systems issues and things like that and an, and an error occurring. And that's a lot mm-hmm. of responsibility and it's a lot of weight. And then when you look at the things that impact us as humans, stress, mm-hmm. fatigue, being hungry, um, just all kinds of different things, time pressures that impact us. And we're expected to, to perform, you know, at an incredibly high level within that. Um, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to contend with. Um, I think, I think that challenge is why a lot of us go into it, but you know, that's, it's, it's why it makes it extra devastating when things go sideways mm. potentially. Cause we care about right. our patients. We care about their families. Yeah. We care about the people that we take, that we're uh, taking care of. Absolutely. My, my first medication error was I, 
I, I had been used to being given like, um, metoprolol for people going into AFib. And this is, you know, I was a young, young nurse. And I will say, I think most errors happen when you're new to the profession or newer, you know, um, well, it seems like that anyway, you're most vulnerable to make a, an error in your beginning of your career, but it certainly can do, can do it, um, at any point in time. But I, um, had gotten an order for diltiazem for someone who was in AFib. And so, um, I, I thought I saw the concentration was the same that diltiazem was as metoprolol, you know, like when I read the vial and there wasn't barcode scanning then either, but I ended up giving somebody, oh my gosh, like five times the dose that they were written for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, when I, I realized it, um, because like I was, they were, I think they were, I don't know, they were like 25 milligrams in a vial and I had pulled out four vials thinking that was, what that, that would have been 20 milligrams, but that would have been a hundred milligrams. Right. Mm-hmm. And after I got to my, I drew up two vials and then I, when I got to my third vial, I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And so I called the physician. I talked to my nurse manager. Luckily, luckily, so somehow, you know, I don't know if I had a, something was on my side that day, but um, this person that I was taking care of was, um, had a significant BMI. And so the physician was like, well, you know, if I would have given it as a weight-based dose, that's actually the dose I would have given <laughs> ordered you to give. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, but I like, I mean, I almost threw up, you know, like that, that feeling of, I, I couldn't believe that I had done that, but I did, you know, and, um, uh, you know, it, and again, for me, it was, I saw what I wanted to see and I just, Yeah. Uh, anyway, it, it, it definitely changed my practice. Yeah. It's an eye opener for sure. I think someone said to me, I think maybe you were a bit too cavalier, like, and I was like, well, I don't think I was cavalier. I just, anyway, I, I just, that always stayed with me forever. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know about that, but I didn't feel like I was anyway, I definitely made the mistake. And luckily the patient was just fine. And it was, I mean, it wasn't an ear miss in that I gave them more medication than they were definitely ordered, you know, um, but that didn't result in harm. I was super lucky, super lucky. Yeah. So the, the statement about being overly cavalier, it's, um, it's a good example of sort of the oversimplification of when Mm. we evaluate these events to say, oh, you know, this happened because you were cavalier and now we're done with this conversation. And if you, mm-hmm. if you compare this to like the Titanic <laughs> diagram, right. right? you know, if, if we actually sat down and broke down everything that contributed to how and why that happened, there would be a mm-hmm. lot of things that we could sort of mitigate from a systems perspective and also from a human factors perspective, quite likely. Mm-hmm. But just to say, oh, it's because of this, and it's so hard because this is our society now, you know, we want to, we want to blame and judge. That's it. We don't want to, we don't want to break things down. We don't want to look at the complexity. We just want to blame and judge. Um, And I think that if we're going to get on top of, you know, the adverse events in healthcare, that we have to fight that, you Mm -hmm. know, and we really need to sit down and, and look at the systems, look at the context, look at the human factors and look at, even if there are shortcuts taken, Sometimes, yeah. sometimes, you know, like if there's a protocol deviation, when I review events, it's not an instantaneous, oh, that was wrong. I, I'd like to know what was your, what was your logic? What was your rationale for deviating from the protocol? And, mm-hmm. you know, in some cases it was a bad protocol, you know, mm-hmm. and the person recognized, oh, I've got to do this. And they, they had, you know, what I felt was a justifiable reason, you know, mm-hmm. So it makes us go back and look, oh, maybe we've got a bad policy. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it has ambiguous language or it doesn't take into consideration these things that our, our folks were up against. So, um, 
I think, you know, avoiding the oversimplification of these, of these conversations and how we look at them mm-hmm. is really important. But the, the problem is it takes resources, it takes people, it takes time. And then sometimes if we need to fix these things, it takes a lot of money. Sometimes some things, some things don't cost a lot of money. Some things do, but look at all of the safeguards now they put into hospitals for medication administration. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got Pixis, you've got, you know, the pharmacist, but you know, we got the human factor there because pharmacists are human. They stock Pixis or mm-hmm. pharmacy techs. You know, you've got the barcode scanning, you know, computers, computer charting, and then all of the training that we do in terms of talking to the, the patient, making sure on top of all that, that they are who they say they are. We know their allergies and we know the correct medication dose and they didn't just get it. <laughs> right. So oh, there's man. all of that technology and even still we have medication still, errors. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking in currently in our um, computer charting system, it says like the last time you gave a dose. So in your instance with the solumedrol, you would have seen, oh, it was given. You exactly. Know? Exactly. And you'd be so, like, oh, and that certainly happened to me. That same exact scenario has happened to me. Yeah. You tell someone, hey, can you give this? They don't, there's no closed loop communication. And then you come back and you're like, wait a second. Did you give that? Oh, <laughs> okay. exactly. All right. Well, great. I'm not going to give it. And thank God that I didn't give it. Exactly. So those, you know, those, those systems they put in place, like in Pixis and the computer charting and stuff like that, barcode scanning, those are really, they're solid engineering controls as long as people don't shortcut them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but those cost money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is kind of the evolution of patient safety. You know, before it was doctors, barely legible handwriting, which I can say that because I have barely legible handwriting too. Um, <laughs> you know, you're deciphering that you're, it's all paper charting, we do not have these safeguards. And so there, there is progress being made, but we still, you know, have a long way to go in the patient safety conversation based on the statistics that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask you, I, I'm like, what, um, why do you think making a mistake is so hard. Like, why do you think that we feel so much shame? Well, I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, we are, we care, <laughs> you know, we care about the people that we're taking care of. We care about our performance. Mm-hmm. We have high yeah. expectations of ourselves and others. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't like to be vul- vulnerable. And then certainly, you know, the shame, guilt that accompanies mm-hmm. those things. Um, and the fact that, you know, we are, we are held to a, uh, a, a very, we have high expectations and we're very, we're held to a very high standard. And so to think that we could somehow, somehow fall short of that standard is really hard to wrap our minds around sometime. Right. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I think if we step back and, and recognize that we are all human, um, not to say that that's, a, you know, a cop out, but right. to extend ourselves some grace mm. and to extend others some grace, um, you know, I think we'd go a long way <laughs> in, you know, yeah. in trying to, in trying to work through some of these things. And then, you know, of course, if, if, if there's harm and, you know, we're, we know that we're part of of harming somebody that's that's devastating that's not what we're about um, and i think it's human nature to feel devastated by that you know the question is what do we do you know like brene brown has a great, great quote about shame and if it's something about if you put it in a petri dish um something want, about i wish it? i wish i had it in front of me it's something about silent secrecy in judgment if you if that cuz that's kind of what surrounds these types of things right silent secrecy and judgment um, but she says if you add empathy then that's kind of the antidote and so i think that as we as organizations manage these incidents and the people involved that we have to have a great deal of empathy um, and then we have to have empathy for ourselves um, mm-hmm. which I think we hold ourselves sometimes to such a high standard that we forget that, you know, we're, we're allowed to have empathy with ourselves as well. And then, you know, 
using that situation, if people, you know, feel supported and are able to kind of process it and work through it, sometimes they can be part of the solution, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, I, I talked to, you know, our crew members in our organization quite a bit about sort of what their perception of what happened was and what their suggestions would be. How do we as a system optimize the environment that they work in? How can we help them mitigate these things that impact them like fatigue and stress and workload and work collaboratively towards mitigating future risk? And sometimes they really appreciate that. You know, I wouldn't force that on somebody who didn't want to, but some people find that it brings their experience um, meaning and purpose and it helps them feel better that even though this, this particular incident happened, they are at least helping to sort of create a better future for their colleagues and future patients. And really a great illustration of that is the Emily Jerry story. Oh, I don't so know if I know that. So she is a toddler who um, had a, a, a tumor and so she's undergoing chemo and she was, she was probably, I think two or three years old and she was, the, the tumor had cleared. She was going in for her last dose of chemo and her chemo accidentally got mixed in hypertonic saline. Oh no. Oh no. And so um, she died as a result of that. And, you know, it's a terribly tragic story um, on so many levels, obviously tragic for her and her family. Um, also tragic for the pharmacist, because if I recall correctly, he ended up going to jail so that, error was criminalized, which is, you know, really, really hard to, you know, wrap our minds around. um, Because I think if you broke that down into all these, uh, you know, all the different sort of contributing factors, I'm sure there are massive systems issues at play. I mean, I know there were. Um, Right. But Hypertonic saline is very different from normal saline. Exactly, exactly. So they have, um, you know, they had a pharmacy tech that was doing the preparation and it was the pharmacist's ultimate responsibility to, you know, check the label and make sure that it was actually mixed in what it was supposed to be mixed in. And for whatever reason, he missed it. Um, But, you know, here's the thing kind of in relative to what we were just talking about um, in terms of working through the shame. The Emily Jerry's family, I think specifically her father started the Emily Jerry Foundation you know, I would really encourage, and it's super sad, so get your Kleenex ready, um, but I would encourage people just to look up the Emily Jerry Foundation and watch this video story. Um, but what happened was when the pharmacist was released, he would would go out with, the, with her father and they would teach together on medication safety. So, I mean, that is a really powerful um, and really, to me, ideal I mean, obviously the family have this, you know, they've just got this, this, this devastating impact to them, their lives and, and the loss of someone that they loved. But there's also, you know, a different kind of devastating impact on the people that were in, involved in that. And so, gosh, to me, the ideal state would, would be to have those people come back together and work collaboratively. And of course, this is a stretch in some situations. It just wouldn't happen because of the, yeah. you know, there's anger. Um, grief, resentment, those types of things. Um, but wow, talk about, you know, two people, Emily, Jerry's father, and then this pharmacist who have processed to a point where, you know, it's kind of the post-traumatic growth thing and they're working together to, you know, help others mitigate risk and help others, help keep others from going through what they went through. And that's just an amazing story. Yeah. I, I'm totally blown away by the, the grace mm-hmm. and the, oh, like you said, the empathy and, and just the personal growth or whatever, it, the fortitude and, and all of it, just to be able to move past such a personal tragedy and, um, and help somebody else basically you know that pharmacy that pharmacist um i'm sure that experience completely changed their life being their life being put in jail and then to have this opportunity for for redemption 
mm-hmm. you know? That's a great word. Yep. Yeah. Well, and this is why, you know, this is why it's just so important that we, you know, really continue to try to understand adverse events and how to, how to manage them and how to actually move towards predictive risk management so that we can keep patients and their families and our caregivers from having to go through this um, because it is brutal. You know, it is brutal, especially when there's harm caused and then there's litigation that's extra brutal because it goes on and on and on for years. And, you know, those conversations are just incredibly difficult. You know? Yeah. And, you know, quite yeah. frankly, um, you know, I, to your point earlier, I think, you know, yeah, new people are at risk. They don't know what they don't know. They might not have developed their risk intelligence, but I also think it's important to consider, you know, that, that this can happen to anybody. Um, it can happen to the best of the best, depending on the conditions. One of the things that, you know, comes from the aviation industry on this topic is, is the incident involving KLM versus Pan Am in the late seventies in Tenerife. So the captain, oh. the captain of KLM, captain Van Santen was, you know, he's the best of the best. He was experienced, educated, highly regarded, um, and because of a, a set of circumstances, he made a decision that ended up in that collision between KLM and Pan Am. And it's, it's still one of the worst aviation disasters in history. Um, and so if people appreciate that, yes, errors can happen to any of us, then that might sort of give them cause for pause and, you know, maybe sort of increase risk intelligence and mm-hmm. decrease risk tolerance a little bit. It's very, it's a very good point. I mean, it's certainly, I, I do agree that, you know, it can happen it and you're right. It does. It does happen too. It can happen to anybody. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, obviously not just nurses, it's like all, all of our hospital staff physicians, Yeah, you know, there's a great, um, don't forget the bubbles series. There's a great talk there done by, um, Dr. Ross Fisher called fixing what was once broken or something to that effect. And he talks about as a surgeon, an error that he made and how that impacted him. And that's just, it's, it's a really good way to look at, um, you know, how people are impacted and how to sort of think through that and process through it. So I'd highly encourage people to take a look at that. I, I watched that with well, You sent that to me. Oh and, yeah. Um, I, I loved it. I'll link that up in, um, the show notes for people to watch. Awesome. It was so great. Um, can, can we talk a little bit about speaking up and the, like, what is the culture of speaking up or what, what do you, there are some lay people out there who might not completely understand. Not that they're not smart. The <laughs> <Very smart. laughs> <laughs> listeners of this podcast are very smart. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So yeah. Sorry. What's, what do you, what is speaking up? So, you know, it kind of goes to this notion of um, a just culture and creating a culture where people feel that they can talk or come forward with, um, you know, if there's a, if there's an error or if there's a near miss. So if you look at a just culture model, it's kind of like a, um, it's a system where there's shared accountability between the organization and the individual. So, you know, historically, um, healthcare, aviation, lots of industries have been very punitive. So something, something bad happens, there's an adverse event, you go straight to the person in the, at the center of it, you fire them, and then you keep going. <laughs> right. So this, this model says, you know, it doesn't make any, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense, because um, I think it's fair to say, and I'm kind of, I'm quoting Dr. Scott Chappelle and Doug Wigman here, that the, the individual or the human is rarely, if ever, the sole cause of an incident or adverse event. So if you really want to solve the problem, you have to look at the, at the system as well. And so the just culture model give us a, gives us a way to look at that. So the organization is responsible for the systems that they've designed and for treating mm-hmm. employees consistently and fairly within that system. And then the employees are responsible for the choices that they make within that system. And, and also, for pointing out system flaws and weaknesses that they encounter along the way. So, um, 
if if we sort of encompass those or embody a just culture, then that would encourage people to come forward because what we look at in a just culture is sort of like, we look at the individual and say, well, and look at what happened and say, well, was this just human error? It could have happened to anybody. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then you're not going to punish them. You're going to console them and you're going to look for what we can do to, we're going to look for systems issues and see what we can do to mitigate future risk. If they took a shortcut and got burned, you know, that kind of thing is that's considered an at-risk behavioral choice. We look at same thing, kind of why that happened. Maybe they need, maybe we coach them. Mm -hmm. Maybe we console them as well, but we also look for system fixes. And really the only category of, of sort of behavioral choices that would be disciplined is reckless behavior where somebody Mm. really went outside of the guidelines, really did something that was not um, acceptable practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's not to say just culture is a no blame culture because there is discipline if people are reckless, but we kind of, it's, it's a way more sort of thoughtful and intelligent way of looking at things. Um, and, it, you know, cultures like that help people to come forward and also understanding the systems approach. So if we understand system th- systems thinking, like I think, I think maybe on the last um, mm-hmm. talk we did, we talked about sort of the Swiss cheese model. And looking at all of the different organizational factors and supervisory factors and all of the different preconditions that are in place that precede um, errors and and mishaps. So if if people understand that model and they know that we're not going to just poke our finger in their chest and say, we're going to blame you for this. What we actually want to do is have you participate in this, you know, identification of system problems so that we can all work collaboratively to fix these systems. Cause if you just fire the person and don't fix the system, it'll happen again, it'll happen again and again and again. And that's the most frustrating thing. And there's nothing worse than when something bad happens and people go, Oh yeah, we saw that coming. We knew that was going to happen. Why didn't they speak up? You know, is it an organizational culture problem is, you know, maybe that maybe there's a shame. Well, I'm sure there's a shame and vulnerability piece there, but and maybe people, you know, sometimes don't know that they have a voice, or if they have a voice, they're not quite sure how to use it or exercise it. But you know, bringing these things forward in a constructive way um, mm-hmm. is really essential to fixing those six system problems. And really, quite frankly, from where I sit, who knows more about the issues than the people with boots on the ground or the people on the front line, you know, the people that do the work every day. So to me, um, we should be listening and we should have a mechanism in place for people to provide us with that feedback to Mm. kind of analyze it and dissect it and figure out, you know, what we can fix and then circle back around and let them know, Hey, you know what, because you brought this forward, you know, and because you collaborated with us with your ideas and suggestions, we got the system fix that will hopefully mitigate future risk. And of course, now we need, we need to audit that to make sure that's actually doing what we think it's going to do. But you, this, you know, you brought this forward and you are a huge part of, you know, any success that we have because of that. When people understand that, um, I think that they're, you know, way more willing to participate. And then also when we have, uh, mechanisms in place to support them. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you know, if, if there was an error, whether or not it caused harm, we should be looking at those things and supporting those um, individuals as we look through those things. So making sure that our organization is trauma-informed, understanding what traumatizes people and, you know, having the resources in place to help them. Um, people might need to go see a counselor or a therapist, you know, for that kind of thing. There's absolutely, I'd be really surprised if people, you know, didn't feel that was necessary going, you know, talking to somebody professional, if they get to Mm -hmm. the point where they're struggling, you know, talking to peers who they, they trust and who they know will, you know, respect their confidentiality and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Just making sure that we have all those systems in place so that we can maintain, you know, keep people healthy as we walk through that process. Yeah. Yeah, I I um I keep thinking about the second victim effect. Yeah. You know, that happens when the big, you know, um or you know, when there's harm um 
anyway, it's, you know, definitely people can really struggle and, um, we don't want to lose people. Um, absolutely. You know, we can't let these people be defined by these incidents, Mm -hmm. right. You know, of all the things that people have done well, we cannot let their career, you know, come down to being defined by, you know, and something that's this human error or something that, you know, we had, um, you know, a part in as a system, you know, we should all be kind of bearing that burden together. And the second victim experience is definitely real. You know, it's people's confidence is shaken and they start playing that tape over and over in their head. They're like, I'm not good enough. I should like, I shouldn't even be in this profession. Right. We lose, you know, really excellent people, not only lose them from the profession, but you know, they can go down the, this trajectory of, you know, self-destruction and ultimately, you know, potentially suicidality, um, Mm. which, you know, we talked about that before, what an abject tragedy to lose our caregivers to that. Um, And so, you know, again, just working collaboratively towards trying to optimize these systems, we cannot expect that people will not err. We just can't Mm. expect that. It's not realistic. And so we need to put these safety nets in place systemically um, to capture those errors before they become catastrophic. And it's not to say that, you know, people shouldn't be personally accountable because there is like, we have to be personally accountable. We have to be constantly like trying to improve and identifying our shortcomings and practicing those things. Um, So, you know, I think that, that there has to be a balance between the system, personal accountability, taking the context into consideration, um, the just culture, being trauma-informed, and then kind of striving to be a high-reliability organization, which, you know, those are those organizations that operate in these highly complex, high-risk domains for extended period of time without having catastrophic incidents happen. You know, and that's something we should be striving for in healthcare, um, just constantly improving. And one of the fundamental tenets of a high reliability organization is reluctance to simplify. (laughs) So, and that takes money, right? It takes money and it takes resources um, and time and sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, exactly. You're exactly right. And it takes commitment and it takes awareness. It takes awareness. Like, I don't know. There are, you know, organizations who I think have they, they believe they have a just culture, but they might be missing that. Hey, let's look at ourselves in the mirror mm-hmm. as an organization's component. And if, you, if you're not doing that, then you don't have a culture of shared accountability and that's not a just culture. Mm. So that's a big shift in mindset. And it just, t- it takes some getting used to as all culture shifts do. But if we can start sort of getting on the same page in, in terms of striking a balance between all these different components, then I think that'll help us be, you know, more successful as we strive to reduce harm in healthcare. Yeah. I love, I love that phrase that you said, the relu- reluctance to simplify. It's just... <sighs> I don't know what it is. I just, I love, I love it. I, I feel like it's, um, it's a powerful, um, pledge, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, and embedded in that is a ton of, um, a ton of time and resources. Like, like I already said, but oh my gosh, Krista, I, you are such an amazing speaker and so eloquent and also, um, (laughs) I am, I just love this conversation that we've had. Um, be, and you know, there are a lot of listeners who, who, who listen, a lot of nurses, a lot of seasoned nurses, new nurses, nursing students, um, people who are, you know, respiratory therapists, physicians. So, you know, a lot of people in the medical field, and like you said, we, you know, we're all, we all, we, we're all vulnerable and can certainly make a mistake at any time. And probably I would say uh, all of us have, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. 
I, mean, what, I think people what? need to understand that, you know, they're not alone. Yeah. You know, we can't let this define us. Um, and let's find ways to work collaboratively on this, you know, um, kind of one last thought on the speaking up piece. Mm. There's a theory out there, um, Heinrich's theory. If you look at it, if you look it up, it, there's it's, it's basically represented like a, as a pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid is the catastrophic event. Um, and then as you go, and it's like one single catastrophic event. And as you go down the pyramid, Heinrich's theory says that for every catastrophic event, there are hundreds, if not thousands of near misses, unsafe conditions, basically red flags, right? And, you know, there's controversy behind all of these models. And that's why I like a mashup of all of them, you know, try to take the best of all of them and, and put them together. But when you look at, at that, um, at that, at Heinrich's theory, what that says to me is we've got all these red flags and maybe if we raise those red flags, speak up before something bad happens, we can mitigate those conditions that are in place and prevent that one catastrophic event from happening. And, you know, yeah. it's a lofty goal, but if everybody, you know, spoke up about their concerns and, you know, it has to be done in a, in a constructive way. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you all have a voice, you know, you mm -hmm. talk about all the different people that might be listening to this, like you all have a voice and we have to figure out how to use it in a way that is constructive and gets people's attention and, you know, really helps them understand from where you sit, what the, what the issues are. Cause you know, people have wildly different perspectives on the same situation, just depending on what seat at the table they're at. Right. Mm -hmm. So to be able to articulate your position, your perspective, I mean, uh, to me, everybody's perspectives are incredibly valuable in these conversations. And then at the end of the day, speaking up, um, being supportive of people that are going through these types of things helps us with predictive risk management. I mean, it's, mm. it's so, uh, you know, unfortunate when we have to be reactive, something bad's already happened. It would be so much more, I think, gratifying, even though it's hard to measure, <laughs> it's hard to measure what doesn't mm. happen, but you get, you know, you get a sense. So if we can move towards predictive risk management, that benefits everybody that benefits patients and their families and all of our caregivers, and then supporting everybody, everybody, as we move through those really difficult situations and really the, the bottom line is so that we can, we can learn so that we can mitigate future risk. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of the, to summarize it all in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, uh, I agree too that it would, it would be nice if it was all predictive. <laughs> I, I'm just going to share. I, I mean, just the other day, I, spoke up about something and I'm, and I felt uncomfortable in my gut about something that I, um, had to deal with my patient. And, um, and I think, you know, I mean, I knew that if things didn't go a certain way, it could have been catastrophic. Um, and so I, you know, I spoke up, I raised my, you know, concerns. Um, and I think some of the complex, one complex piece about, you know, the work, the world that I'm in is that you don't know anybody's level of experience. You know, a lot of times we work with all different types of providers. And so anyway, I just, I'm reflecting on it because I was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. It was totally uncomfortable. Like I mentioned, you know, Oh, Hey, um, are you sure you want to do this? Have you talked to your fellow, you know, like, you know, just, I want to talk to you outside about my concerns. Um, luckily everything went fine. It was all gravy. Right. But even having that conversation was just like, she's going to think I'm a bitch, you know, but, or she's going to think she's incompetent. Or she's going to think that I think this about her or that about her. When really I was thinking like, you know, my patient could die if this goes sideways, you know? Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of barriers to speaking out. And it's interesting because they know that the the KLM versus Pan Am um, tragedy that I mentioned, you know, out of that and a couple other significant um, 
commercial aviation crashes came, um, crew resource management, which is a strategy, it's, it's sort of a, in aviation, it helps teach how to have those conversations. So it's mm-hmm. about communication, conflict resolution, maintaining situational awareness, managing distractions, managing workload, leadership, teamwork, um, and decision-making and judgment. And, you know, to me, although those sort of concepts fit perfectly into healthcare, and it's for Mm -hmm. exactly the reasons that you're outlining, you know, do we teach people how to have those conversations in nursing school? You know, I mean, you kind of have to learn it on the job, um, I guess, if if you learn it at all, um, you know, just kind of make it up as you go, right? Um, But to bring sort of those principles of crew resource management into healthcare and into the cl- clinical context. I know that some people are starting to do that. And I think it's really important because it would help you with that sort of internal battle that you're having before you, you broach that topic. <laughs> you know? Right. Cause there should, there should, I'm shooting myself, but yeah. there shouldn't be that. Like, what does she care about what I think about her? Right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's like, you know, it's, it's, I mean, at the heart of it, it's always about the patient, right? Yeah. No. And I so. think, I think, I think you're in good company with that. You know, a lot of people have those conversations in their head before they're having a, a difficult call. Well, what are they going to think? Are they going to be mad? Are they going to think poorly of me? Are they thinking, are they going to think I'm an idiot? You know, like, what are they going to think? And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. No, <laughs> And you can't control matter. that. So Right. And totally. I can't control it. No. And, <laughs> we you know, can't control it. Yet. It sounds like you did a great job, though. Like the way you outlined it, you know, you're outlining your concerns. You got their attention. You just said you, you walked through it calmly. You know, I think taking away like inflammatory words, um, taking away sort of, um, you know, everybody loves drama these days. So taking away drama and just, hey, matter of fact, here's what I'm here's where I'm at. What are your thoughts? <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's great. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. I love the idea of having crew resource management in healthcare. That sounds fantastic. Uh, You know, when I learned it when I was a flight nurse, I use it all the time. I use it in everyday life. You know, it just really, there's good tools and good strategies and just even making people aware of these concepts, like situational awareness is a big one. Um, you know, law, uh, sort of a loss of situational awareness, even though it's, that's kind of a, a very overgeneralized catch-all for some things. You know, once people know what that is and kind of know what the, the levels mm-hmm. of situational awareness are, um, sort of becoming aware of it solves the problem. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, there, you know, all sorts of interesting things that we can do. We can, you know, sh- share between healthcare and aviation. Um so many different kinds of tools and ways of looking at things, but I think we have to, you know, be open-minded about it, be willing to move away from the culture of old where we're like, you know, kicking somebody in the chops when something goes sideways, you know, that's the last thing they need. Yeah. Right. So they're already punishing themselves enough. I'm telling you, I spend three quarters of my time trying to get people to stop playing those tapes and reminding them of all of the good work that they do and reminding them that they're contributing to this bigger conversation about, you know, making things better moving forward. So it, it's a hard topic and there's no perfect, you know, perfect solution, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's ever going to be easy. But I think the more that we sort of normalize these conversations, you know, that's a good step in making it easier. Yeah. This is exactly why I had you on the show (laughs) because I do, I do, I do. I wholeheartedly agree with you that it's so important to normalize these conversations and, you know, at the heart of it so that, you know, we can take care of our patients, we can take care of each other. And, um, I just want to say, Krista, you, you are making this, this place, this world better and you're helping make things better here um, on the Found Dad podcast. So I just am so grateful. So grateful. uh, Thank you for your kind words. And thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's just incredibly important. And gosh, thank everybody out there who has been working so hard to take care of patients in such a difficult, I mean, it's a difficult, difficult environment to begin with. And then you add the events of 2020 and, you know, moving here into 2021. So please don't ever forget what a, what 
amazing people you are and what great work you do and you know your where your hearts your hearts and souls are at is just amazing and I know it's difficult but we'll keep chipping away at it together we certainly will thank you so much Krista for being on the show today and for being such an amazing and fantastic guest as always oh of course of course um as always, I'm going to close this out with saying stay safe and stay sane, and I'll see you on the next one. That was. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave an honest review on whatever platform you are listening. Also, feel free to share this with your nursing colleagues. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at founddownpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to send in any stories. Just make sure they're HIPAA compliant. Also, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at founddownpodcast. We'll see you on the next one.